In 2019, Tembi Locke published *From Scratch*, a memoir of love, Sicily, and finding home. It tells the story of how she pieced her life back together after losing her husband Saro to cancer. She spent three summers in the town in Sicily where Saro grew up, connecting with his family, their daughter, and the food and traditions he grew up with. The book is also a celebration of Tembi and Saro's love story. That story is now the focus of *From Scratch*, a Netflix series based on Tembi's memoir. The show follows Amy, a character based on Tembi and played by Zoe Saldana. We meet her when she's an art student studying in Florence, Italy. She may not have been looking for it, but she quickly finds love, better known in Italy as amore. She meets a young Sicilian chef named Lino, based on Saro, and from there the show dives into the life they build together and the life that Amy must rebuild after tragedy strikes. After the break, Tembi and Tembi's real-life sister Attica Locke join one A guest host Indira Lakshmanan. Attica is the showrunner and producer on the series. They share stories about bringing their experience of family, loss, and food to the screen. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the One A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. We'll jump into that conversation after the break. This is One A. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, in for Jen White. Attica Tembi, welcome and thank you so much for being with us. Thank, thank you. you for having us. Oh my God, we're so excited. <laughs> well, I'm so excited to talk to both of you.、Um, this show is just beautiful. I mean, first of all, I have to admit my absolute adoration of Italy and Italian food, and just you know, watching it transports me there. It's like a little bit of a holiday, but then you get sucked in, thinking you're going to be watching this rom com and this lovely, beautiful, you know, travel log, and suddenly, boom! It hits you with real life and all the sort of real tough questions, and Tembi, of course, you know what it turns into is, you know, this beautiful love story that then is hit by tragedy. So I want to ask you: healing from loss is not a linear process. And when you decided to write this memoir, of course, you couldn't have dreamed at the time that it was going to be adapted into a number one Netflix TV show. But you know, let's start with the memoir. Where were you in your journey of healing when you started writing the memoir? I think it's thank you for the question. Grief is definitely not linear, and that was something I really wanted to communicate with readers and be very open and honest and authentic about that. I began writing the book. The fifth anniversary after my husband passed, so there were five years of deep, what I call feral grieving, of piecing my life together, of trying to understand what I had been through, to integrate、um, loss into my life, and to carry it forward. And writing the book was one of the tools. Of processing the life we had lived together,、um, I had been writing for the whole decade that he was ill, so I had all of those writings there available to me, and I felt compelled to document, to create a legacy. And I think people who lose someone very dear to them are always looking for some way to honor that person and to make sense of the life they had together. 
And what you did, of course, takes it a step beyond a caring bridge account, those things that many of us who've gone through having family members with cancer are so familiar with, where we share the sort of daily updates with everyone in the family and friends. You've turned it into something so beautiful, um, you know, a memoir that really has lessons for everyone beyond you, your husband, your family. Um, and, you know, takes the reader and for this show, the viewer on a full, <laughs> full impact emotional journey. I mean, I have to say, I did feel a little bit tricked. I thought it was going to be a rom-com and then it hit me. I was like, boom, was not expecting that. Um, but, you know, I do have to ask you, Tembi, you are, you know, first it, it's a book, a hit book, then it becomes a hit show. You're having to revisit some pretty beautiful, but also some pretty painful memories. So I want to ask you about both of those things. First of all, you know, you get to see yourself. You're, you are, I should tell for, you know, listeners who don't see you and maybe haven't seen you on the screen. You're a beautiful actress yourself. You get to be portrayed by another beautiful actress, Zoe Saldana. Woo! I mean, that's pretty amazing. Um, you know, so what is it like to watch her interpret your love story with, you know, the man of your life who you met when you were 20 years old. Did you watch that happening? I, I wonder whether that would color your memory of your own first meeting with your husband to be. This is an excellent question. Thank you so much. I, um, well, watching Zoe play Amy, which is a version of me, but we definitely, Zoe and I talked early on and I said, make Amy yours. Amy isn't, you know, some replica of Tembi. She's inspired by the events of my life, by the pulse and heartbeat, but make her your own. But watching it unfold was humbling. It was emotional. It was at times joyous. And at times I looked away. Because I could not, and I didn't need to, from a just deep emotional place within me, um, see the recreation of some of certainly the more painful moments, right? And one of the ways, one of the things I chose to do in certain key scenes was to literally turn away from the monitor, like not watch it, the filming of it. Because one, I wanted to maintain for myself the imprint and memories that are just mine, mm -hmm. right? That are not some Hollywood recreation. They're just for Tembi, just for me. And, you know, I have since seen them, but I really worked hard hard to sort of like understand what is the production, the artifice, if you will, and what is just mine. Mm -hmm. And I think that was really, really important. And I kept photographs of just my late husband and I in my office. You know, I kept things that helped me to always be connected to my truth. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important because, you know, it's so easy to get sort of implanted memories. You don't want to be thinking that what happened to uh, Zoe Saldana on screen is what happened to you. But by the same token, I would think that there is a traumatic aspect to reliving the death of your husband, both in the writing of the story and then in the watching it being brought to millions of people and, you know, turning into a number one hit. I mean... Tell me about that for you and for your daughter um, to sort of re-experience that on screen. Um, well, a couple of things. Yes, the there is the trauma. Luckily, I have my sister who's also, you know, with us here today, who's our showrunner. And we talked very early on about where I would be involved, where I wouldn't be involved, what scenes I needed to be present for on set, and the scenes that are the recreation of 
the most life-changing moment in my life. I didn't need to be there for that. And I wasn't present on set for that. Um, I can say I have not watched those scenes the way I've watched other scenes, you know. And um, we definitely take our mental and emotional, you know, care very seriously here in our house. And so it's my my daughter has not seen it and doesn't need to see it. Hmm. You know, it that it's that is not um, entertainment for consumption for us, if you will. And so Attica and I were very clear about that. And I'll let Attica speak to some of the ways that we, when we were filming, the way we um, handle that and sort of really attempted to share something very intimate, but also make it incredibly universal. I'd love to hear about that, Attica, because you are already, um, you know, the the two of you are a creative duo in this case, but you've each been having your own careers in Hollywood as successful, one a successful actor, one a very successful writer. So, Attica, tell me, how did you say, okay, well, this is one where we're going to collaborate. I'm going to take my sister's story, bring it to the screen, we're going to work together on it, and as you say, the care that you took with how to represent those moments. Tell us about that. It it all came from great love, meaning I mentioned the book to Hello Sunshine, Reese Witherspoon's company, because I just thought the book was fantastic. I just thought it was such an interesting story. And they asked me to be a part of it. And I was like, okay, yeah, let's do it. This is now <laughs> happening. Let's do this thing. And everything that Timby said, plus the way that we approached the really difficult scenes is, and there, there were lots of things in the hospital. There's the, the scene uh, in episode seven uh, with Lino is that I asked Timbe, I said, tell me the top five things you would like me to communicate to the director and to the actors. And then you don't have to be here. And then I'll handle it from there. And the other thing too, that Timbe is bringing up is that it, it, the way that this story is, is landing with people is because there's something universal in it. So we had, a, we had, I had a leadership style Tempe and I, even though it was a, a true story, we kept reiterating to everyone in the cast and crew, we are open, we are here. And so we got pitch ideas from, from set decorators. We got pitch ideas from the actors. We got pitch ideas from, from the props department. And we listened to all of those because we wanted to let this vibrate at a level that was beyond what had just happened to our family. And so there are moments there are key details that really came from the communal. It came from doing this as a team with lots of people who also experienced great love and great loss. And we just tried to have that kind of an atmosphere through the production. Mm -hmm. Well, Attica, you know, I, I want to go a little bit deeper on the really interesting dynamic of having two sisters working on this together. I've heard that the two of you have been close all your lives, um, but to be able to have a creative collaboration on material that is personal, then by the way, you, Attica, are also portrayed in the show, you're, you know, by a character who is supposed to represent a fictionalized version of you. Um, so, you know, being able to tell a family story to the whole world and you know, a family story that also has some 
um, difficult points beyond the cancer diagnosis and the death. It also has the element of um, misunderstanding, cultural, cross-cultural issues, racism. Um, you know, for those who haven't read it yet or seen the show yet, you know, you, Tembi, are a black American woman from Texas. Um, this man who you literally bumped into on the street while getting gelato and who, who says he fell in love with you at first sight, um, this young, handsome, you know, Sicilian chef, um, you know, decides that the two of you have a future, but his family isn't so sure. They, you know, are traditional um, Southern Italian, Sicilian, Roman Catholic family. Um, you know, they're not so sure about a black woman from America, from a divorced parentage, um, you know, from a country America famous for lots of divorces, and they were not so accepting of you at first. So I guess I want to ask you, two sisters telling a story, working together, does that make it incredibly like dream team awesome? Um, or is it delicate and sensitive and sometimes a bit too emotional? Uh, I'll kick it off. Oh, you go first, Attica. I was going to say it's dream team. It was to, for me. I hope you don't have a different answer to me. Oh, it was a it was a dream team experience with an awareness that first and foremost we had to tell an entertaining story. First and foremost, and if we have signed up for this, our feelings then have to be managed against what the story needs. And then I'll let you go, team. Absolutely. That's what I was going to say. I mean, the sort of, we were in contract that we are here in service of this story and we've been given this wonderful opportunity to expand it, to blow it out, to put it on a global canvas. So anytime any sister stuff came up or would come up, we were like, okay, we're going to work on that. But right now we have a show to produce. And what we, you know, I mean, quite frankly, and that got us up every morning. And it also drew us closer and it made us have to really refine our way of being with each other, both as sisters and as co-collaborators. So it was really additive, ultimately, to our relationship. It was not without struggles because production always has struggles in it. But that was really the thing that galvanized us. And I think you see it all on screen. It was all of the, the all the blood, sweat and tears that we all put into it. And that's our whole producing team. <laughs> you know, not just Attica and I, because were, and, and our directors, it was an, an incredible endeavor. Uh, but we laughed a lot. <laughs> We're talking to sisters Tembi and Attica Locke, the creators of the Netflix series From Scratch, starring Zoe Saldana, which was number one on Netflix last month. I'm Indira Lakshmanan. You're listening to 1A. And we got this voicemail from Tasha in Atlanta. I really enjoyed the series from scratch. And I was struck by the accuracy at which they portrayed the hospice um, care situation as far as not only during, but especially before when all the doctors are being evasive and the whole thing is confusing and nobody wants to say the quiet part out loud to you. So that really struck me, but it was highly accurate. <laughs> so I appreciate that. So people can know what they're getting into or what they can be prepared for. So Tembi, tell us a little bit about that, the honesty with dealing with something like hospice, which is nobody wants to say the quiet part out loud. Um, that was something I um, knew had to be in the book. I struggled with writing that, one, from an emotional point of view, but also being a sort of truth teller, not just to my own experience, but to some aspect of the 
medical industrial complex <laughs> that and and what we often walk up to in our medical system at the end my own experience when we came to putting it on the screen we it was very very important to us that we get it as accurate as possible and it it um because we have an opportunity to, as you said at the very outset, start a conversation, right? So yes, this is one woman's experience. This is unique to me, but it is you. It is not you. It is not my own experience, right? So many people have had it, and if this show and if that scene and if that episode can start a conversation inside of hospitals, inside of medical schools, inside of, of training, if our if families can talk about what do we want at the end, how can we interface with our our clinicians and doctors, and we can change that, great, great, <laughs> and that's what we wanted to do. Yeah. You know, what? Oh, ahead. yes, please, Attica. I was just going to say my hope, too, is that people see that the, 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 the dichotomy of being alive, even as you near the end, that even in an episode where all this heavy stuff is happening, there's joy, there's laughter, there are funny scenes I, that I wanted to show that life goes up until the last second. We'll hear more from you and from our guests in a moment. Food is such a big part of this story that we see on screen, obviously also in your real life, Tembi. In your memoir, you write about visiting Sicily, where your late husband grew up, and discovering meals and food traditions that became first a love language and then eventually healing experiences. Let's listen to a clip from the show. This is when Amy and Lino bond over a shared love of grits or polenta, as Lino knows it. I made you something. Hot grits with butter. Just try it. Questa è polenta. Si! Polenta in Italy. In Texas, we call them grits. You see? It works in both places. Like we do. I love that it works in both places like we do. And I want to talk about food as a love language, which was really, I mean, those were the words that popped into my mind in reading and watching. I, I do feel like food is this universal pleasure that is able to cross cultures and geographies because it's so visceral and deeply human. The experience of discovering new flavors and aromas and surprising textures and mouth-watering colors. It's a deeply sensual experience to eat and to share food with people we love. So tell us, Tembi, about how that manifested in your real life. And then I, I want to hear more from Attica about how you make that love of food actually come to life on screen. I think the first thing I'd say is that not only is food, yes, a love language, but we are also um, so imprinted by memory of first taste, right? And in fact, that first episode is called First Tastes. Um, and we remember and we associate a good meal often with who we were eating with, what the setting was. And it's a full sensory experience. And so one, I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about the ways that love, that food is love, 
the way it food is used to, you know, seduce and woo and mend fences and ignite dreams, also to control. You know, food has so we wield it in big ways. And um, it is often an extension of our emotional state and what's happening. And so I I write about that a lot. And I learned that being married to a chef. Um, I saw what food did in restaurants. I saw what it did when we had friends who came over for, you know, at our home. And I saw what it felt like when he passed away and the absence of it in my life Mm. and how deep my my own relationship with food changed incredibly after his passing and I had to find my way back to it. And so when we got to the adaptation, we wanted to, our challenge as storytellers was how do we put all that on the screen and just show Mm -hmm. it? Because we can't tell people that, right? We just have to give them a fully immersive experience. And I'll let Attica. Yeah. Yeah. Attica. Yeah. Tell me about that. And specifically, how do you make food come to life on screen where your viewers can't smell it and they can't taste it? Well, first of all, in the writer's room, you consciously try to set lots of scenes of drama around a table because that's what happens in families. So many things that are dramatically wonderful, dramatically difficult happen around dinner tables and in kitchens. Then what you do is you hire the best director I can think of for this show named Nzinga Stewart, who was a um, a music video director who is a visual kind of genius, I think. And then you get a great cinematographer. And then we got a person who helped us build all that food. Tembi came with all of these great ideas of things that she had tasted before, things that Sadr had made. Uh, just she scoured the internet for photos and her own notes for recipes. And we had a chef who ironically was named Lino, <laughs> who helped us on set build these dishes. And so between the alchemy of what Le- this Lino did, what the cinematographer, what the director did, we built beauty into every frame. And with music and the visual and motion of the camera, you then use all of that to suggest what it feels like to have these meals. So it was a lot of different pieces all coming together, all the way up through the editing process. Yeah, I certainly would have loved to have been on that set eating some of the leftovers <laughs> that were cooked by real-life Lino Chef. I bet you did. Yeah, we, we did. Line, we used to line up at the props department at the end of the day and see what we could take home. I bet you did. And and interestingly, that they were based on Tembi's own recipes, or I should say Sato's recipes, that appear in Tembi's memoir that kind of, you know, punctuate or, let's say, flavor the book throughout, um, which is such a lovely thing that you, as a reader, you get to experience those recipes, you know, sort of cook your way through this story of the book, which um, certainly seemed like your intent. Attica, you mentioned how important it is how families do live their lives around a table eating. And there's an episode where Lino experiences his first Thanksgiving with Amy's family. And it really illustrates their two cultures converging. Amy, a black woman from Texas, Lino, a white Italian. It gets a little awkward. Let's listen to part of that scene. Lino, I have never been to Sicily. Do they have something like Thanksgiving over there? Oh, yes. It's the olive harvest now. Okay. Yeah, Lino's family are farmers. I hope they're organic. Well, they are. We have our food straight from the land, yes. 
it was my mom who taught me to, to cook with the freshest ingredients, with the, the best the earth has to offer. Mm. Anybody want some more candy games? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you can put some on my I'll split it with you. Have a little more. Okay, so there's this incredibly long pause there that gets a bit awkward. <laughs> what what was going on, Tembi, in real life? I guess, Attica, you were there too. And why was it important to include that scene in the show? Well, you know, that that Thanksgiving dinner is sort of a composite of many moments um, of awkwardness at the table when two cultures are coming together and also when a new person enters someone's nuclear family, right? There's no, We wanted to really tap into what is it like when you are in a relationship and you're building your relationship and suddenly you have to now figure out what this your partner's nuclear family is like. And seeing that for the first time is kind of jarring sometimes and you see them through a new lens. So we wanted to certainly set the table, if you will, for that, right? What is happening inside of their relationship. And from a food point of view, we wanted to see the way that this is a scene where food is used to control, right? Amy's family comes in and they're like, yeah, okay, we see you, but no, this is what we do. <laughs> and you either get in line with that or it's not happening. And people do that, right? And so they, in the scene, they display, no spoilers, but they displace all of his food, right? Um, right. And, the point and, was he had wanted to introduce some new foods and make yes. a special case of like, ooh, I'm going to contribute potluck like, to no Thanksgiving. Way. No way. <laughs> like, no, and we like turkey. <laughs> yeah. And that's them putting up a hard barrier saying, no, this is who we are. And so, you know, food often is a way that we we share and we try to blend and our, that scene is a scene of them not blending, right? <laughs> By the end, we get to a different place, but this is this is, this is is the wheeler saying, this is who we are in the world. Um, and I think in in life, it was much gentler than that, you know, and it, it, was, it was nothing, but we wanted to sort of dramatize this moment and really punctuate it. We asked our listeners to share some of their favorite foods and memories. And here's a message we got from Kimberly in Orlando, Florida. My favorite memory is my grandmother's cooking, always cooking in the kitchen of her home. And her dishes always started with a batch of sauteed onions, chopped celery, garlic, and butter. It was added to every dish with the exception of baking, of course. And Every time I smell it, wherever I am, I'm taken back instantly to my childhood and nothing but warm thoughts. <laughs> and here's a wonderful voicemail that we got from Reese in North Carolina. And when I think of recipes uh, that are soothing and like comfort food, I think of my Colombian mother's arepas, which she made for us for years. Um, and my mom did not write recipes down. So it's not as though she's got a box of index cards sitting around somewhere. When I decided her arepas were something that I wanted to tackle, uh, I would call her and ask her to remind me of what her ratios of cheese to water to arena might be. Uh, and she uh, she took more than a few of those phone calls. But I finally got a handle on it. And uh, I, I do have to say that it is a comfort food. It's something I'm glad I'm able to make for my family. And my mom, who's 
going to be 88 in a couple of weeks and is sadly for us in the early stages of dementia. Uh, she's so kind. When I make them for her, she always says that I make them better than she ever did. I think she's just being nice. <laughs> I want to pick up on what Reese said about comfort food, because that ties us right back to the story. You know, even though, um, you know, your book and your show acknowledge that Sato's family had trouble accepting you at first, Tembi. What happened was over time, um, a union of your families, a melding of your families and acceptance that largely happened through food. Um, and I want you to tell us about that, because cooking was not only the way that Sato and in the show Lino copes with happiness, with sadness, with the illness, but it's also how you got to be friends and family with your mother-in-law. Yeah, I think, um, thank you. My, my, in the arc of my life and, and, and to the degree that it is, we, that is also on screen, the moments in episode 108, the, our, our finale, when Amy is beginning to sort of rebuild her life and she's seated at the table of her mother-in-law, a woman with whom there had been initial conflict, strife, had not come to the wedding. My mother-in-law in real life understood that in order to build a bridge and have a relationship with me and to help me heal, she cooked for me every day. And we, the two of us, had Italian in common, but she spoke Sicilian and obviously I speak English. And when language fell away, what was left was, how can I comfort you? And she did that with food. And doing that consistently over time, and as I write about in the book, over many summers, we forged a new and a close relationship. And eventually my family also folded into that. And I think we wanted to illustrate that because one, especially in that episode, when there is such grief and loss on both sides, sometimes the most heartfelt thing to do is to actually just hang out in the silence just acknowledging mm. the depth of what you've both experienced and then a gentle offering in this case food mm -hmm. right is the way that you find your equilibrium you find your solid ground you find your way back and those the imprint that i then had of those first summers after sato passed and i seated at my mother-in-law's table were so visceral and strong and such a love language that they felt worthy of writing about Mm. Right. Because she had done something miraculous in the most simple, basic gestures of, as your caller said, the sofrito, which is the celery, onion and garlic sauteing on the stove. Right. As the base for everything. That was the base of the love language. I would smell that. I'd come downstairs in her house and I'd be like, what's what's cooking? <laughs> you know, like, let's sit here and talk. Some and love and those, some healing. Yeah, yeah. And we built a relationship. And the book wouldn't be here without those small, small moments, right? Well, I so, want to I want to say that, you know, this notion of food as healing and bringing us back together, you know, it fits with how we began the show talking about how grief is not linear. And one of our listeners, Freder, has tweeted to us 13 years after raising kids. After burying my husband when they were small, I can absolutely say grief is not linear. 
Mari Sol sent us this one, this question for you, Tembi. She says, I'm engaged to a widower. His wife essentially connected us during her dying time. Tembi, how have you moved forward with relationships in light of your well-documented, deeply loving marriage that ended in death? Um, partnering with someone, first of all, how wise of her to, to, to text that, because it is a unique experience to partner with someone who is widowed. Um, and I say that there's a great deal of intentionality and a great deal of strength, right? And a great deal of openness that has to come within all of that. I have repartnered and it is an active conversation all the time of holding the past, the present while you build a future, but it is possible. Right. And it is possible in that truth and standing in um, the awareness that you are going to talk about the person's beloved. <laughs> right. And it's wonderful that you're that, you, that she says, you know, the person who has passed away connected them. And I think they're always connecting us here in this realm. Well, thank you so much. That was Tembi Locke, author of From Scratch, A Memoir of Love, Sicily and Finding Home, and her sister Attica Locke, showrunner and producer of From Scratch on Netflix. Thank you so much for joining us. Today's producer was Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, D.C., distributed by NPR. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, in for Jen White. Thanks so much. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.